Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash ancestor. November 9th, Brotherly Love. Dante's elbows rested on his white marble desk, and his hands held his head. How could this have happened? Every time he turned around, they were stepping deeper and deeper into a head-high pile of dog shit. He looked up. Magnus sat in front of the desk relaxing in a chair. He seemed not the least bit bothered by his actions. Magnus, how could you have done this? Dante spoke quietly, firmly. For too long, perhaps, he'd ignored the sad truth. His brother was a bona fide sociopath. Relax, Magnus said. The problem is solved. Solved? Solved? You killed Erica Hole. And what would you have done, given her a raise? Dante's face scrunched in frustration. He felt a pain in his chest. He pounded the desk with his fist just once. The fist stayed there like a dropped gavel. Dante, seriously, you need to relax. Magnus sounded as calm as if this were a budget meeting with the board of directors. That calmness infuriated Dante even more. His own brother, a killer. I don't see the problem, Magnus said. Our facility is destroyed, including our equipment, including the cows. I had Farm Girl send an email to the media. The Animal Liberation Front claimed responsibility for the blast. Gosh, they didn't mean to hurt anyone, but as they said in the email, if you commit atrocities on God's creatures, don't blame the ALF if there's collateral damage. Fisher knows that's all total bullshit. Of course he does, Magnus said. But the ALF has grown more aggressive in the past few months, so the story fits. The media buys into it. If they do, so does the G8. Everyone wants to see xenotransplantation shut down, and guess what? Now we're shut down just like everybody else. So what can Fisher do about it? He'll look for Roomcorp's project, that's what. And he won't find it. Fisher has no idea where Bubba and the staff have gone. As long as no one on Black Manitou gets stupid and tries to contact the outside world, we're in the clear. It's what you wanted, Dante. Time for Roomcorp to finish the project. Dante sat quietly. Magnus hadn't just made a snap reaction, hadn't flipped out over his service buddy's death. He'd thought all of this through. In a way, Dante wished it had been a reaction, a crime of passion. That would have been easier to understand than premeditated murder. This isn't Afghanistan, Magnus. This isn't combat. You killed a woman, for God's sake. His brother smiled. Are you going to pretend you don't know what I am? 
Pretend you weren't secretly relieved when Galena conveniently disappeared? Dante leaned back as if he'd been slapped. He hadn't wanted Galena to die, not even for a second. I had nothing to do with her death. You did that, not me. He felt his heart hammering in his temples. His skin felt hot. Magnus rubbed his right forearm. You told me you wished Galena could just go away. What did you think I was going to do when I heard you say that? Did you think I wouldn't come through for you? Dante looked away. Magnus was wrong. It hadn't been like that. It hadn't. Dante had just wanted the project to continue, to benefit all of humanity. Of course he'd wished for Galena to go away. But he'd said as much in front of Magnus. Said it, seen the cold look in his brother's eyes, and said no more. Dante, you know I love you, but let's be honest. You really don't have a lot going on in the balls department. You have Dad's skill at running a company, the fundraising, the public panache, all that good stuff. When I watch you do your thing at board meetings or the media, it blows me away. I can't do those things. But when it comes to the other stuff, the off-camera stuff, you just don't have Dad's stones. I do. Together, we make a great team, wouldn't you say? Dante felt that pain in his chest again, sharper this time. His brother's eyes, so cold, not a shred of emotion. Get out, Magnus. Just get out of my sight. Magnus stood and walked out, leaving Dante alone with his stress and his shame. November 9th, the ferry. Clayton's Humvee followed the same road they'd flown over. No surprise, since it was the only road. Arching trees walled up either side. Brown, half-bare branches dripped from their inch-deep coat of melting snow. Many trees had black-flecked white trunks with peeling, paper-like bark. Pine trees stood out the most, thick and full compared with their anemic hardwood cohorts. Almost no sign of man. It was achingly beautiful. Unkempt dirt roads branched off from time to time, leading to the small, dilapidated houses Colding had seen on the way in. They passed by what had to be a road to the old town with a big church. Not far after that, the forest thinned a bit. The road quickly crested at a steep dune spotted with tall grasses. The dune's downslope led to the island's small harbor. Beach smells filtered into the open window complete with a strong odor of dead fish. Up and down the shore, heavy, purplish-gray rock outcroppings led right up to the water, some sliding in at an angle, others standing as small cliffs. Patchy, dry-orange lichens covered the top of the rocks, adding texture and depth. In the long spots between the rocks, there was nothing but sand, grass, and a few scraggly trees reaching out from 20-foot-high sloping dunes. Thick logs dotted the beach, some had gnarled roots still attached, white and strip-free of bark. They looked like the bleached bones of desert animals unable to survive an endless sun. The road ended at the blackened wooden dock, which ran 40 feet into the harbor's calm waters. A small black metal shed sat near the base of the dock. At the end of the dock, Colding saw Gary's boat, a 36-foot shark cat cruiser with a flying bridge. The perfect boat for deep-water fishing or a dockside party with 15 of your closest friends. 
black and gold script spelled out the words Das Auto 2 on the boat's aft. Gary hopped out of the Hummer, as did Colding. They both walked down the dock to the boat. This closed him, and in the sunlight, Colding saw that Gary's irises looked dilated. Colding finally placed the smell, the sleepy look, the constant half-smile. The guy was baked. Gary, have you been smoking marijuana? The man giggled a little, a soundless thing that made his shoulders shiver. Yeah, I've been smoking marijuana, Mr. Narky Narkison. Why, you want some? No, Colding said. Just how stoned are you? Gary shrugged. I don't know, man. How high does the scale go? God damn it. This was their only support on the mainland? Gary's smile faded. Listen, brah, don't sweat it. Just because I boof a bit doesn't mean I can't handle my business. I'm not a fan of drugs, Colding said, or people who do them. Gary rolled his eyes. When he did, Colding seemed to hear his own words through Gary's ears. When the hell had he started talking like a high school guidance counselor? Still, he had to probe a little, see just how much of a liability Gary Detweiler might be. Magnus tells me you can take care of yourself. Gary shrugged. I do what Magnus tells me. That's why I'm always carrying this stupid thing. He unzipped his coat and opened it a bit, allowing Colding to peek inside at a handgun. Janata's preferred weapon, a Beretta 96, nestled in a shoulder holster. Colding nodded. You ever had to use that on the job? Gary laughed. Do I look like Clint Eastwood? My preferred weapon is a bottle of single malt. I get more done drinking in the bars at Houghton Hancock than I ever would with this stupid gun. I talk to strangers. I ask questions. I find out why people are in town. I see if people have any interest in Black Manitou, which they shouldn't because only locals even know it's out here. The only shooting this kid does involves tequila and bourbon. Colton could hear the sincerity in Gary's voice. The man hated carrying the weapon. So if you don't like the gun, why work for Janata? Gary nodded towards the Humvee. My dad has lived on this island for 50 years, man. He's not leaving. This is where I'll wind up burying him. I need to be here for him, you know? And if I work for Janata, well, then I get paid to be here for him. I make crazy money, and all I do is drive this beautiful boat and bang tourists. Once or twice a year, Magnus and Dante come around. I say, yes, sir, and no, sir, and take them wherever they want to go. Maybe I'm not a gunslinger, but this is more like a permanent vacation than a job. But you'll use that gun if you have to, Colding said, his voice low and serious. If my people are in danger and I call you out here, you're prepared to do what I tell you. My dad is now one of your people. I'll do whatever it takes to protect him. Colding extended his hand. Gary, I think you and I see eye to eye. Gary's easy smile came back. They shook. Anything you need from the mainland, just use the super-secret mega-spy radio in the security room. Dad will show you how to get a hold of me. Thanks. Oh, and uh, Magnus had a message for you. He said make sure his snowmobile's ready. It is. It's in that shed with mine. Gary pointed to the black metal shed at the foot of the dock. I keep it there so when we've got five feet of snow... I can get to the mansion and back to the docks. Five feet of snow, Colding said and laughed. Whatever, dude. I wasn't born yesterday. 
Gary just smiled a stoner smile and nodded. Colding stopped laughing. Wait, you're serious? Five feet? Sure, Gary said, if it's a mild winter. The Humvee's horn blared. Can you two stop grab-assing? Clayton shouted from the vehicle. I've got work to do! Gary threw his dad a snappy salute, then untied the boat and hopped in. He climbed up a ladder to the flying bridge. Seconds later, the Shark Cat's engines gurgled to life. They sounded big and powerful. The boat had plenty of room, easily enough to evacuate the entire staff if it came to that. Gary waved to Colding and shouted to be heard over the engine. Good luck, Chief. I'm just a call away if you need anything. With that, Gary gunned the engine, trailing a strong wake as he headed out of the harbor. Colding walked back to the Hummer and hopped in. Clayton stared after the boat, then shook his head. Such a show-off, that guy. I love him, but it's hard when your son is a fairy. A fairy? Colding said. You think your son is gay? Clayton shrugged. He's got an earring, eh? Pillow biter for sure. My word, Sarah said. An earring on a man? Well, he's got to be one of them there homosexuals. Colding rubbed his eyes. Clayton, you are truly a man of culture and learning. Ain't that the truth, Clayton said. Okay, let's get this shit finished so I can get on with my day. I get paid for maintenance, not for being a fucking taxi driver. The term salt of the earth didn't go far enough to describe Detweiler. More like the rock on which that salt might crystallize. Clayton, I think you need to relax. Yeah? Well, think about this, eh? Clayton leaned onto his left cheek and ripped off a loud, barking fart. The rotten egg smell immediately filled the Hummer. Oh, for crying out loud, Colding said as he leaned his head out the window. Sarah let out a gagging noise, but she was laughing as she rolled down both the back seat windows. Oh, Clayton, she said, breathing through her shirt sleeve. What crawled up your ass and died? Clayton's shoulders bounced up and down in a chuckle. He breathed in deeply through his nose. Oh, that was a good one, eh, Colding? Welcome to Black Manitou, city boy. Just take us to the mansion, Colding said. I want to see the security room. Clayton backed the Hummer off the foot of the dock, then drove over the sand-covered pavement and crested the dunes. He was still laughing when he drove onto the road leading to the mansion. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.
November 9th. Drink till you uke. Insanity. Tim Feely had worked with Jean for two years, so he felt confident knowing insanity when he saw it. And all of this? Yeah, insanity. Less than 24 hours ago, Erica Hole had been licking single malt scotch out of his belly button. Slowly. That was good. That was hot and fun and sexy. Sure, being stuck on a frozen island for months on end was crap on a cracker, but being there with a wild-ass Dutch cougar made it a tad more palatable. Since then, explosions, sabotage, Brady Giovanni burned extra crispy, that same wild-ass Dutch cougar nearly choking out John with a fire axe, colding all bloody, a gigantic plane, and a secret frickin' base filled with youpers. It was like a James Bond movie featuring inbred hicks. And, perhaps worst of all, being awarded Erica's duties. He needed a drink. Maybe somewhere in this mansion he'd find one. And hopefully, before he found a gun. Because if he had to listen to this way-too-happy woman with the curlers in her hair for one minute more, he was going to shoot himself right in the face. This is my favorite view on the whole island, Stephanie said. It's the back porch. Really, Tim said. I guess that's a good name for a porch on the back of a house. Stephanie laughed. Her ex-jock husband did not. He shot Tim a glare that clearly said, Watch it, asshole. Guy wasn't as big as Brady had been, but he was big enough. Tim decided he'd watch it. Hangover or no hangover, the view from the sprawling veranda simply took Tim's breath away. The mansion was a jewel atop a crown of snow-spotted golden sand dunes that sloped gently toward the shore. Flecks of sand and snow blew across cut stone steps that led almost to the beach. Whitecaps frosted the water all the way to the horizon. Hundreds of frothing spots stood stationary against the roiling waves, ship-killing chunks of granite. Two hundred yards out from shore, a towering rock rose sixty feet out of the water before it seemed to fold over on itself. What's that big rock that looks like a horse head? Oh, that's Horsehead Rock, Stephanie said. Of course that's what they'd call it. Black Manitou Island, a place of poetry. Come on, Stephanie said. There's so much more to show you. A wide, floor-to-ceiling picture window stood at the back of the veranda. French doors led into an expansive lounge filled with leather furniture and expensive-looking tables. A long mahogany bookshelf packed with old leather tomes surrounded a large flat panel TV. A matching mahogany bar with a marble counter and brass trim dominated the room. Behind it, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you, sat a well-lit glass liquor cabinet filled with hundreds of bottles. Tim walked straight to the cabinet. Lonely glasses were lined up on a long white cloth, just waiting for a friendly handshake. He grabbed one and started looking through the bottles. A little early for a drink, isn't it? James said. There's always room for jello, big fella. Tim saw that one brand of liquor dominated, taking up an entire shelf. You've got enough Yukon Jack to last through the second coming. Assuming, of course, that Christ likes to drink till he ukes. I'd leave those alone, Stephanie said quietly. Those belong to Magnus. Ah, Magnus. Well, Tim would just go ahead and leave those alone then. Oh, my, Tim said as he pulled out a bottle of Colila scotch. Come to Papa. 
He poured a glass and drained it in one go. Burned going down. The first glass was just hangover medicine, really. The second glass was for taste. Mr. Feely, James said. Do you mind? We've got work to do. Tim left the bottle on the counter. He followed James and Stephanie out of the lounge. The rest of the building reeked with turn-of-the-century high class. The 20th century, mind you, not the 21st. Teak paneling, mahogany trim, every room sported a crystal chandelier. Back in the day, this place must have been the hotness. But all the style and warmth couldn't quite hide the building's age. The floor dipped here and there. Some teak wall panels didn't quite line up. Every hall and room held the visible signs of minor repairs. Decades of settling had taken their toll. Thirty guest rooms, Stephanie said. Dining room, kitchen, all that stuff. The basement has all the old servants' quarters, which are pretty much storage now, eh? Also houses the security room, but we can't get in because only Clayton has the door security code. We'll show you your room, then take off. His room. Perfect. Nap time. And not a nap in some godforsaken Air Force chair designed by the Marquis de Sade. A couple more drinks, then delicious slumber. He drained his glass. Mr. Feely, I need you! A gruff German accent. The voice a dagger in Tim's ear. His heart sank as if his parents had just caught him looking at nudie magazines. He turned to see Klaus Rumkorf, hands on hips, standing in the hallway. Mr. Feely, are you drinking? Tim looked at the empty glass in his hand as if he was surprised to see it there. What, this? Well, I just found this lying about, and I'm being a good citizen. Cleanliness is next to godliness, you know. We are ready to start the implantation, Rumkorf said. Come with me back to the plane, now. Rumkorf turned and stormed down the hall. Stephanie shrugged and held out her hand, palm up. Tim gave her the glass, then followed Rumkorf. November 9th, the super-secret password. Colding followed Sarah and Clayton through the mansion's halls and down a stairwell. Jack Kerouac used to vacation here, you know, Clayton said. I used to drink beers with him all the time. Colding threw Clayton a doubting glance. You drank with Kerouac? Yeah, hell of a guy. Farted a lot, though. He could clear out the entire bar when he got going. Colding tried to imagine one of America's greatest literary figures ripping off a loud one in a bar full of youpers, but the picture just wouldn't register. What about Marilyn Monroe? Sarah asked. I heard she stayed here. You drink with her, too? She liked to drink alone mostly, eh? I banged her, though. Nice tits. The utilitarian basement showed far less ornamentation than the two upper floors. There wasn't a speck of dust on anything. Clayton stopped at a door with a small keypad and punched in zero, 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 zero. A heavy deadbolt clicked open inside the door. Wow, Sarah said. Pretty crafty password, Clayton. The old man shrugged and walked into a completely modern room. White walls with fluorescent lighting set into a white suspended acoustic tile ceiling. A row of security monitors sat on one wall, mounted above a white desk that held a familiar-looking computer. The computer screen showed a slowly spinning Janata logo. But the desk wasn't what caught Colding's attention. What held his eyes and made him instantly nervous 
was the three-shelved weapons rack that took up the center of the room. This here is Magnus's toy chest, Clayton said. Colding stared in amazement. He ran his hands along a row of assault rifles. Three German Heckler & Koch MP5s, two Beretta AR-70s, a British SA-80 with a thick night scope and a triple magazine, four Israeli Uzi 9mm, and a pair of Austrian Steyr 69 sniper rifles. Below the rifles hung a rack of Magnus's favorite handgun, the Beretta 96. Ten of them. Boxes and boxes of magazines and ammo occupied the lower shelves. Two sets of Kevlar bulletproof body armor hung from the end of the rack. There were some other supplies, first aid kits, MREs, four propane canisters with blowtorch nozzles, four lighters, and 15 K-bar knives still in their white cardboard boxes. What is all this? Sarah said, concern heavy in her voice. Is Magnus going to war or something? Clayton shrugged. Something ain't right with that boy. Colding noticed three small wooden ammo crates on a middle shelf. He felt his stomach do a flip as he gently pulled out the box, opened it, and saw the contents. Demex? Fucking plastic explosives? And detonators, Clayton said. Doesn't exactly make me happy to have it in my mansion. Colding saw one more thing. On the bottom shelf, a long black canvas bag. He unzipped it. Inside was a five-foot-long case, painted a drab military green. Four metal latches held the case shut. No way, Sarah said quietly. Please tell me that isn't what I think it is. Colding flipped the latches and lifted the lid to reveal a five-foot-long metal tube, blocky on one end, all of it painted olive green. A handle stuck out from the blocky part. In front of the handle, Colding saw a metal rectangle that folded out into an IFF antenna, an acronym for Identify Friend or Foe. A useful feature, considering this weapon could blow just about anything out of the sky. It's a Stinger missile, he said. I told you not to tell me, Sarah said. Her voice sounded alarmed, not a surprising reaction for a pilot looking at a plane-killing weapon. Anyone want to tell me why Magnus needs a surface-to-air missile? Colding didn't know the answer. He zipped the bag, slid it back into place, then stood and walked over to the desk and its bank of security monitors. The setup was identical to the one they'd left behind on Baffin Island. Clayton, what's our video coverage like? Clayton walked to the counter and started pushing buttons. A series of views flashed across the screens. The outside of the mansion, the harbor, the ballroom, guest rooms, the kitchen. It surprised Colding to see the ease with which Clayton worked the controls. The old man knew his way around security systems. Good coverage, Clayton said. We even had that crazy infrared crap. We got regular video all over, including everyone's rooms. Turn off all the room cameras, Colding said. Everyone but John. He watched as Clayton started flipping switches. Done, Clayton said. Why leave John's active? You like them big girl peep shows? I, no, Clayton, I do not like big girl peep shows. John's tried to kill herself before. She has to be watched at all times. And as soon as we're done here, please go into her room and remove all glass and any mirrors. Take down the chandelier and put up a simple light fixture, nothing she could hang herself from. For once, 
Clayton didn't have a smart-ass comment. I'll make sure the room is safe, he said. What about the hangar? Sarah said. That covered too? Clayton pushed more buttons. Multiple views of the hangar, both inside and out. He stopped when the screen showed the Mammoth C-5. There's connections for cameras inside the big plane. Sarah, your boys hooked those up yet? If it was on the fly-in checklist, probably. Clayton pushed more buttons. Monitors now showed Alonzo in the C-5 cockpit, Klaus and Jean in the second deck lab, and Tim Feely in the veterinary station across the aisle from the crash chairs. Clayton changed the view to show Harold and Cappy walking from cow stall to cow stall, opening the clear plexiglass doors. The press of a button lowered the harnesses, putting the animal's weight back on their hooves. The twins led the cows out of the C-5 two at a time. Yep, Clayton said. They got it done. That's all the coverage we got. No wireless, no cell phone, no internet. Landlines connect to James's place, Sven's, my house, the hangar, and every room in the mansion has its own extension. Only way to reach the mainland is the secure terminal. He pointed to the small computer at the end of the desk. It was a duplicate of the one Colding had used at Baffin Island. That calls my son or Manitoba, Clayton said. We take care of each other out here, and we're careful, eh? But anything goes wrong, help is three hours away at best. I want to see the island tomorrow, Colding said. All of it. Will your Hummer take us all over? Clayton shook his head. No way. A lot of swamp on Black Manitou. But don't you worry, eh? Me and the Nuge will show you everything. The Nuge? Clayton nodded. Ted Nugent. The Nuge, eh? Well then, Sarah said. Slap my ass and call me Sally. If deadly Tedley's involved, then I'm in. Great. The last thing Colding needed was that woman tagging along again. Uh, Sarah, there's no need for you to go this time. Just stay here. She shrugged. Gotta go. It's the Nuge, man. That's right, Clayton said, smiling his bristly smile. But no sleeping in, eh? You both have your asses on the front steps at 8 a.m., you got it? Got it, Sarah said. I have to check in with my crew. Drive me back to the hangar, Clayton? I'd be delighted, eh? Colding, your room is number 24. See you tomorrow. Colding nodded, barely paying attention to Sarah and Clayton as they left him alone in the security room. Whatever a nuge was, he'd see soon enough. He moved to the weapons, checking the action on each and every one. His mind swam with possibilities, mapping out contingencies. Three hours to the mainland by boat, only there was no boat here. Other than Gary Detweiler and the Paglione brothers, no one knew they were on Black Manitou. No one. But, he reminded himself, that was the way it had to be if they wanted to complete the research, bring the ancestor to life, and give hope to millions. You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.